being really critical with yourself, only showing your best work. And I think there's a tendency, I do this myself, <laughs> to think, God, I worked really hard to make that photo and I waited in that position for so long and I was so hot and I was so hungry and I just wanted to leave and isn't this picture amazing? But you know, if it isn't, it shouldn't be in your portfolio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Photo Forward podcast, where we explore the stories behind some of the greatest visual storytellers in the world. From their photographic origins to finding work-life balance as creative professionals, to how to actually make a living as a photographer, videographer, or multimedia creator, we're going to uncover what makes them tick and their shutters click. I'm your host, Ben Brewer. All you younger photographers, all you independent photographers, all you freelancers, break out the notebooks because this episode is not one you're going to want to miss. What we've talked in previous episodes about making photographs and crafting stories that are meaningful, we haven't really looked hard at how to get that work seen by the world. Don't worry, in a future episode of Photo Forward, we'll be talking with an expert on pricing and the financial side of creating your work. But today we're taking a brief detour from photographers to take a deep dive into the other side of visual storytelling, photo editing, with today's guest, Coburn Ducart. Coburn Ducart is the Digital and Multimedia Director for the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism, where she directs its visual strategy, creates visual and audio content, manages digital assets, and trains student and professional journalists. Our conversation centered around her decades of distinguished work at national news organizations as a photo editor for National Geographic, National Public Radio, and The Washington Post, among others. Coburn has received numerous multimedia awards from the National Press Photographers Association, POYI, and the White House News Photographers Association. Her multimedia work also has been honored with a Webby, a Gracie, a Murrow, and DuPont Awards, not to mention a nomination for a National Emmy. In this episode, Coburn and I talk extensively about a number of visual storytelling topics like what to do and what not to do when you're making a story pitch to an editor, why building trust with the individuals in your photo stories is critical to making meaningful visual work, and how understanding the ethics of shooting and publishing photos, hell, even captioning them, can make a key impact on how visual media is viewed. You can find show notes with photos we talked about during the episode and links online at photoforward.media forward slash podcasts forward slash Coburn. So without further ado, our interview with Coburn Ducart. Coburn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So uh, there's a lot of places I want to, I could start here. Um, but I guess I want to go back to kind of kind of the beginning. Uh, tell me a little bit about when you wanted to get involved in photography, in, in photo editing, all of that. Go back a little bit. Sure, no problem. So I um, have an undergraduate degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin. And while I was in school, I took a number of classes on reporting. And I had to go out into the street and interview people. And I was just absolutely terrible at it. I was afraid to talk to people. I didn't like making phone calls. Um, and I thought, I'm going to be a terrible journalist. This is not the career for me. And so um, after college, this was in the early 90s, I um, did some traveling abroad. And while I was 
traveling in Ireland, I um, met a woman who was a photography student in New York. And she had a camera and she was taking pictures of everything on her travels. And all of a sudden something clicked in my brain and I was like, oh, that is where I can put my journalism skills to use. I'm going to do photography. And from that on, that's exactly what I decided I was going to do. And I just had to figure out how I was going to make it happen. So is it just a matter of kind of being, would you consider yourself a shy person or? I think I am a bit of a shy person um, or more introverted, I would say. I, and I think maybe that is something that a lot of visual journalists might say they have in common, which is that they use their camera as a barrier um, between themselves and the world, but also, you know, they're able to use it as something that gives them power. Um, well, for me, you know, speaking for myself anyway, it, it, it made me feel stronger. It made me feel like I had a reason for being places that, you know, normally you wouldn't go. Like as a photographer, you get to go behind the scenes or backstage or, you know, get into people's lives in a way that a normal person didn't. And I really, I liked that feeling. I liked having the camera on me. I liked looking through the viewfinder and seeing the world in a different way. Um, and I just realized that also um, in thinking about what I wanted to do for a career that I didn't want a job where I was going to the same place every day and sitting behind a desk every day and doing the same thing. I really needed variety. I thrived on that. Um, I love to travel. I love to, even though I'm more introverted, I do like to meet new people and have new experiences. And so sort of thinking more about that. I was like, you know, this, all these things fit together, um, for me. Um, and I can try and make a career out of it. And then I had to figure out how I was going to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you have had quite a, quite an illustrious career, uh, looking at, at some of the stuff you've done. So that was during kind of your time, uh, in graduate school that, 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 that kind of clicked. Yeah. So that was in between undergrad and graduate school. So, um, that, that realization for me came after, undergrad um, here. We're in Madison, Wisconsin, and that's where I did my undergrad. Um, after that, I um, actually, I was really lucky. My father is a photojournalist, um, but he does video. Uh, he was a TV cameraman for his career, which is, I think, a little bit, you know, I had it in my, in my genes. And he introduced me to some newspaper photographers that he knew in Washington, D.C., which is where I grew up. And there was one woman, uh, her name was Astrid Rieken. She still works in Washington. She is an incredibly talented photojournalist, and she took me under her wing. She was working at the Washington Times um, at the time, and she had me come to work with her and shadow her and see what it was like to be a photojournalist and uh, brought my camera along, and I shot along side of her and um, I remember her uh, I remember the moment where after we had photographed I think some kids on a playground and she said okay well now you have to go get their names and I said what <laughs> um, I have to talk to them <laughs> She said, yes, you have to go talk to them. I think that's every young photographer's <laughs> nightmare when they realize, wow, I have to interact with a lot of strangers and, and ask them their their name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then I realized, oh, gosh, I do have to be a reporter. Um, but, uh, you know, she walked me through the process. We actually I remember we were still shooting film. Um, we went back to The Washington Times. She um, put my film through the processor at the Times and um, her and I think her and her editor um, looked through them as if it was 
an assignment and they were really kind to me. And um, I really appreciate that opportunity to just sort of see what it was like. Um, at that point, I then applied to, um, well, just one school, University of Missouri, um, for grad school for their photojournalism program. And um, a year and a half later, I found myself moving to Columbia, Missouri. Going back a little bit, why why Wisconsin uh, growing up or when you grew up in, in D.C.? Because okay. I think Wisconsin, I think to a lot of people is kind of the middle of nowhere, <laughs> relatively yeah. speaking. So. I know. Let's let's make sure they keep thinking that. Yeah, so. they, that's fine with me. <laughs> yep. We love it here. <laughs> here we are in the middle of nowhere. Um, my um, great grandfather uh, lived in Chicago and in the mid 1900s uh, bought a piece of property up in uh, Door County, Wisconsin, which is a couple hours north of Madison for people not familiar with the state. Um, It's on Lake Michigan. And so I grew up um, spending my summers in Wisconsin. And so my whole experience of Wisconsin was that it was this warm, sunny place (laughs) by the lake. It was really beautiful. And so when I came to look at colleges, I came to here to Madison and uh, there were sailboats on the lake and it was just gorgeous. And um, I think I was in denial about what the winters were going to be like, but I found myself here and and now I'm back. Okay, there you go, there you go. And we'll get into uh, get into uh, coming back to Wisconsin a, a little bit later on. So I want to go into so now you've you've gotten into to graduate school uh, at Missouri, and you've kind of realized that photography is your kind of pat, your kind of path forward. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about grad school. Like what what kind of what kind of things did you study there? Kind of focuses all of that. Yeah, I felt uh, really lucky to be accepted into that grad program because. Um, up at, to that point, I didn't have a lot of experience being a photographer. And so the grad students take the same classes as the undergrads, um, which is really basic photojournalism 101. Um, I had a wonderful professor, David Rees. He just retired um, this year. And he was just, he's magical. He just taught people the basics, not of how to use your camera, that you had to learn on your own, but more how to be a photojournalist and how to interact with people, how to make meaningful um, images that were storytelling images that went beyond the obvious. Um, and so we started with portraiture and then worked up to doing, you know, find how to find a moment, um, how to take a picture. It was called the people without people picture, how to um, show what a person's life might be like without actually having that person in the frame. That's a great, that's a great exercise. Yeah, I I actually struggled with that one. I still remember. Um, And then we had to find our own photo story, um, pitch it as if we were pitching it, you know, to an editor um, and then, you know, spend a a long period of time um, shooting the photo story and um, getting critiqued along the way. So as well as learning how to shoot, we learned how to critique, how to be a good editor, how to be a good colleague, um, how to give constructive feedback. Um, so not just focusing on ourselves, but really embracing the concept of being a community um, from the beginning. So that was really valuable. And then you form ties with people. You bond with people in your class, you're, you're artists, you're working together. And, you know, those are people that I'm still friends with today. So what do you think is something, uh, one of those key things about kind of critiquing work or kind of the uh, evaluating work side of it that you learned from that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, and this could apply to anything in life, it's, it's finding the positive 
in something and then also finding a way to say in a constructive way, this is how you could have pushed yourself a little bit further. Um, I, I always remember one of the early assignments that I had, I took a portrait of somebody and there was a telephone pole shooting out of the back of their head. And which everyone's done <laughs> which at some point in their life. Does. Yeah. And, um, you know, David Reese said, you know, this is an interesting portrait, but you're going to want to watch your backgrounds. There is a telephone pole coming out of this person's head. And I got very defensive and I said, but it was there. I couldn't have done anything about it. <laughs> and he said, yes, you have to move yourself. You have to move your feet. Um, you know, you are in charge of, of the frame. And obviously it's a lesson that I, I still think about today. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that having that sort of collaborative environment where you kind of had that opportunity to probably uh, bounce ideas off everybody in that in that setting was probably pretty helpful. Yeah. And I think also just learning that everybody has their own style. Um, and that is something that as an editor, you know, later in my career, I've tried to encourage people to embrace, which is their own style. Um, it can be tempting to try and shoot like somebody else. And I think that's how everybody starts. They have photographers they admire and they try to replicate that style. And then ultimately what they have to figure out is their own style. So um, learning that everybody has their own style, not everybody's going to shoot uh, in the same way and embracing that and, again, pushing them to um, develop that style a little bit um, further and further. Yeah, I like that. It's funny. I had an earlier conversation with the photographer, uh, Jerome Polis, who I just I started out with. He was kind of my first editor photographer that I worked with. And he he said something to the effect of take a look at the photo that wins, uh, say, NPPA, BOP or any of the other contests and then wait a year and see how many photos look exactly like it in all the other contests. And it's kind of that you see, you see that style and you just have to emulate it because, Oh, they won the awards. It's a whole other, you know, rabbit hole to go down with, with contests and awards, but it's kind of that sticking to your own style. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's something I, I wish I had learned as a younger photographer. Um, you know, again, it was a different time period when I went to grad school. Um, there were still jobs in newspapers was the way that people were going. That was what we were encouraged to do. Those were the internships we were encouraged to apply for. Those were the portfolios we were encouraged to develop. Um, you know, you would have your sports picture and your portrait and your action frame and, um, you know, your your checkbox of, of images that you would need to have in your portfolio. And, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case for photographers' portfolios anymore. I think having a style um, that's very distinctive to them, especially as more and more people are moving into freelance, um, is going to make them stand out um, rather than just necessarily being a jack of all trades. Yeah, yeah, that is that is important. Um, okay, so so we've gotten into into sort of the grad school now. Tell me a little bit about sort of your first job out of grad school. Yes, let me think about how to tell this story. <laughs> um, I think, let's see, so I went to grad school for a year, studied photojournalism, I applied for a couple internships, I didn't get them. Um, I The self-doubt sunk in again, which I think is something that is... We all go through, right? The like, I'm not good enough. My um, fellow students are getting internships. I'm not. What's wrong with me? <laughs> um, I think we probably all go through that. Um, so, yeah, I want to let me dig in a little bit deeper <laughs> yeah, on that because yeah. I think that's honestly, I think that's something that a lot of us, a lot of photographers, are really struggling with, and they mm -hmm. think they're the only ones struggling with it. So, tell me a little bit about how you kind of 
push through that a little bit. Mm, yeah, I, I'm not sure at the time that I did, to be totally honest. I think at that point I thought, you know, I'm not I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough to be a photographer, I don't have what it takes. Um, and I, and I wish I wish somebody had said to me, yeah, you do. You know, you just need to maybe spend a little bit more time working on your technique or working on your style. You're you you are awesome. You know, like a little bit more. You know, and that's not anybody's responsibility. Ultimately, it does come from the inside. But um, I think that is where maybe I shifted in my career to decide to become a photo editor as opposed to a photographer because um, you know my. The way I've always approached my life is if everybody's running in one direction, I'm going to run in the other. Um, That's sort of how I feel like I've approached so many different things I've done. So I was like, okay, everybody's getting these internships. They're going to be a photographer. You know what? I don't see anybody around here doing photo editing. And, and, you know, as I had learned from um, that that class as well as some other classes working at the at the student newspaper you know there is a role for photo editors it's an incredibly important role um, you can encourage and support your community without necessarily being the photographer um, I had done a class where I was you have to be both the, there's a class at Missouri where you are the photographer and then uh, you spend some time being the photo editor and I really enjoyed that so I decided to pursue that um, aspect of of you know, photojournalism. And I had worked, I had the opportunity to volunteer at the Stan Kalish photo editing workshop, which at the time um, was held in Milwaukee. And so I spent a week with um, some of the industry's best photo editors. And that was a really eye-opening experience to see like, oh yeah, this is a career. This is really cool. You can talk about photography and you can, you know, make assignments and do layout and, you know, look through photos and have great conversations about photography. And that was really inspiring. Um, And then I think to get back to your question, my first career... The reason I'm pausing is because I left grad school for about two years before I went back. Um, That's another story. But I did end up getting, um, with the help of uh, photo editor Mike Davis, who at the time was the photo editor at the White House, he um, enabled me to get a photo editing internship um, in the White House. Um, So I moved back to D.C., which was uh, my hometown. Obviously, very um, exciting atmosphere to be in. Um, he was so calm, so patient, such a brilliant photo editor. Um, he really helped me to develop my eye. He gave me important tasks to work on. He empowered me to be a photo editor. And so I was working with, you know, um, the president's photographer, President George W. Bush, and um you know, working with his images, working with the vice um, president's photographer, the first lady's photographer, learning about the archiving system there, learning about how that whole operation worked. That was who was the photographer for for George W. Um, Eric Draper Eric was Draper. the photographer. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And he also is just an incredibly kind soul, um, very calm, very patient. Um, I think again to get back to sort of the qualities of some photo some photojournalists not all you know he was he's a very um big presence but um emotionally very quiet very calm um just able to capture these beautiful quiet moments um be the fly on the wall and it was really cool to to learn from him so going back to the the Kalish workshop because i think that's 
that's a pretty impressive place. There's a lot of talent there. So what kind of surprised you uh, the most about that? Or at least what, what kind of caught your eye about editing the most, like in, in learning from some of those experts? Hmm. That's a good question. I think um, one of the lectures that I remember is the ethics discussion. And I think that is something that is really important to talk about as photographers and as editors, because, again, we are um, given access to very intimate moments in people's lives. And especially if you're doing a long-term story, um, you know, you might spend a lot of time with people and see things about their lives that, you know, they've given access to. And you have a responsibility to tell their story in a way that is both fair and accurate, um, but not misleading. Um, I also remember a discussion about breaking news photographs and photographing people in a time of vulnerability. Um, so that is a lesson that sticks out to me quite a bit. Um you know, and I think with ethics, there's never a right or a wrong, but it's like, how do we have this conversation? How do we have this conversation on deadline? How do we set up our newsroom in a way that we can have these conversations? Um, so that's something that has stuck with me and, and, and came back time after time after time in my career when we did have to make um, ethical decisions about photos, often on deadline. Um, so I think that was a really good conversation to have. And what, what are some of those? I'm kind of curious. Um, yeah. So um, the OK, so the example that I remember from the workshop and again, I was a student at this time. Um, so this was probably 15, maybe even 20 years ago at this point was I think an editor had brought in an example from the newspaper. There had been some kind of chemical um, spray, something got on people's bodies where they had to quickly run out of a building, be showered down by the fire department, and were outside, unclothed, mostly in a, you know, in a vulnerable situation where these people had not, you know, put themselves in the public eye, but because this situation had happened, the photographer was there, had taken pictures of them, um, some women, you know, wrapped in a towel or something like that, um, being sprayed down by the fire department. And I think the, you know, it was a dramatic scene and the newspaper, I can't remember the exact situation, but I think they ran a picture of these, these women not wearing a lot of clothes in a very vulnerable situation. And the discussion was, was that fair to them? Was there another image that could have told the story without putting them in such a vulnerable situation? Um, again, not, necessarily right or wrong, but I think it is good to have these conversations. So fast forward many, many years later, I was working at NPR as a photo editor. Um, the earthquake in Haiti happened, and um, obviously there was a lot of casualties. We flew our photographer down there very quickly. He was on the scene very quickly. Um, there was a lot of death, unfortunately. He photographed um, a scene at a morgue, which was very powerful, very emotional, the coroner was doing his best to control, you know, a very chaotic situation. And so at the time, our homepage wasn't set up in a way that we had a caption um, that was displayed on the homepage. We had a photo slot, but there was no way to describe what was happening in the photo. So people would have to click You'd on have it, to, go to the article. Exactly. And then, and then read the caption, right? Mm -hmm. So we had this very dramatic photo of the coroner sort of stepping over these bodies that were overflowing in the morgue and you know the photographer knew that the man was trying to be respectful but it looked like 
in the scene that maybe he was stepping on or jumping or running or something like that. And when we put it up, it was all of a sudden like, wait a sec, our readers are not going to understand what's going on in this picture. And we had um, a real quick huddle with our managing editor and the director of visuals and myself and, you know, tried to figure out like, is this fair? Are we conveying what we're trying to show? Is this misleading? And what can we do about it? And so... It was pretty cool because very quickly we got the, you know, website developers involved. We retooled the homepage. We figured out a way to display a caption. And it did change the way that our website operated just so that we could make very clear to the readers what was going on in our in our images. Yeah, the context in that image, I'm sure, especially is is critical because mm-hmm. it, it could be telling a completely different story one way or the other mm-hmm. just based on sometimes things that aren't in the picture. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, you know, that brings up, you know, a whole nother conversation. Should we be showing death on the homepage? Should there be a graphic warning? At what point in the story, you know, in the development of a story, is it okay to show that sort of a thing? What is our responsibility to our readers? You know, it was our horrific scene. We want to tell the story, but we can't, um, you know, gloss over some really unfortunate and horrible details, but still be respectful, obviously, to the people that you're photographing who have become unwilling participants in a in a disaster. Yeah, I mean the the ethics side of of photography, you know, truth and and objectivity are kind of a bit under attack at the moment. So, what kind of role do you think that that photography has, you know, with all these kind of sometimes ethical di- issues along with with taking pictures? But what kind of role do you think that it has in sort of telling telling the sort of quote-unquote truth mm-hmm. I mean I think again photo editors play such an important role in our business because you know as the photographer again like especially in a breaking news situation you don't want to censor yourself you do want to be able to shoot freely you want to think but you also want to be able to capture the scene you know and then one of the things I love about working in a team is having the ability to go back, have that conversation, have an editor make a decision that works for the publication as well as works for the photographer as well as is respectful to the subject. And so I do think that um, that relationship is an incredibly important one. And I know obviously not everybody works in a newsroom. Not everybody has the luxury of that relationship. Um, you know, so many photojournalists and photographers are freelance. Um, many people are editing their own film. Film. I'm saying that in air quotes for people that can't see <laughs> film. Um, you know, and so, you know, it can be hard. And I think that is why it is important to develop a community. And even if it's, you know, a fellow photographer or somebody that you can bounce an idea or an image off of, like, hey, what do you think of this? Does this work for you? Um, are you understanding the message here? That can be really valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I know I kind of ran into a, a situation similar to that. It was now, I guess, a few years ago after the the shooting death of Tony Robinson here in Madison. And we had covered the story for a while. I was covering it for Reuters. And you know, we had covered sort of the protests, a lot of the responses, um, and sort of the last part of the story was covering the funeral, which is a public funeral. Um, and towards the end of it, they were they were moving his casket out to the car, and it was one of those moments that you kind of have to you have to think like, all right, this is this is this furthering the story? Is it furthering the sort of truth of what happened? Is it is it necessary? 
Um, and ultimately we decided that it, that it was, it did kind of provide that sort of closure to what was going on, but it definitely was something that we, me and, and my editor at Reuters definitely considered like, all right, well, is this, is this, you know, putting the people there in the public eye, um, necessary? Is it the most important thing we could do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were able to have that conversation with your editor? Yeah, it's uh, my editor, uh, Chris Helgren at, uh, at Reuters in, in Toronto. And, and we did talk about whether that was, you know, necessary to have that photo in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that you guys had that conversation. So important. So yeah, you've you've done a lot as an editor. Um, and sort of when people might look at stuff you've done, one of the things they'll see is, is you worked for National Geographic for a while. So you you talked about working in NPR for a while. So what what made you uh, transition uh, to doing something a little less in sort of the the daily kind of grind of news? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, like I said before, I always like to change up what I'm doing, and I had worked at NPR for seven years at that point, and um, really loved working there. I still love the people there. Um, uh, we had done some really amazing things in moving the visual conversation forward at NPR. Um, when I first got there, they didn't have a photo editor. I was the first one on staff, um, along with a, one photojournalist. We then later hired a second, then we hired a director of visuals and um, sort of grew our team over that seven years. So um, after being there for a while, my the director... Uh, Keith Jenkins moved over to National Geographic. They were starting a new photo blog. Um, he asked if I was interested in writing for it, and I said I was. So I um, you know, took that opportunity to see what it was like to work at National Geographic. And um, also, you know, my personal situation had changed at that point. I had um, a family. I had a young child. I had another child on the way. And I wanted to take a step back from the daily news grind and do something that was a little bit more predictable in terms of the hours and in terms of um, what I knew was, you know, going to be expected of me. And so I, you know, it was, there was a lot of different factors that played into that decision, but it was exciting to be part of something new that was starting up. They were um, developing a blog called Proof where we interviewed um, both National Geographic photographers as well as freelancers and uh, talked to them about their photo essays. We featured their work. We, you know, got their names out there. We had intimate conversations and it was just an exciting thing to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that is going back a little bit to sort of the managing the the work life and the personal life. I think that's something that we we as photographers tend to tend to eschew the the, the personal life in, in favor of just kind of grinding away at, at our work. There's something to be said for that, but, but sort of during that point where you kind of realize like, you know, I need to focus a little bit more on, on family. Talk me through a little bit kind of your, what you were thinking through then. Like, is it just, did it happen sort of all of a sudden, like kind of a light bulb moment or was it kind of over time? It just kind of got a little more I think in the back of my head, I always knew that I wanted to have a family. And I think um, if I'm being completely honest, that might have been one of the reasons I went more in the editing route than the photographer route, because I knew that I would eventually want to have a little bit more predictable working hours, not be running off and traveling all the time, um, not be getting up in the middle of the night to do breaking news coverage. And so when that time finally came Many years later, when I did have a family, I had sort of positioned myself in a way that I was able to make it work. I mean, 
no working mother is ever going to tell you that they're making it work. But, um, you know, you always do the best you can. So, um, yeah, it was just a matter of sort of deciding, you know, what is my life going to look like? How am I going to put all the pieces together? Um, you know, having young children is very tiring physically, emotionally. Um, your time becomes incredibly valuable. Um, one of the things I think I did realize um, is that it actually made me an incredibly efficient worker because prior to having kids or a family, you know, I could stay at work all night and often I did, you know, I, there was nobody I had to get home to, so I could take my time. I could be, you know, spend extra time working on projects at work. Um, and then, you know, when you have a kid and you've got to pick them up at daycare at a certain time and you have to like catch that bus or, in my case, get on my bike <laughs> by an exact time every day. Um, you know, work became just, I got to do a great job. I have a very limited time in which to do it. I'm going to be incredibly efficient because that's what I have to do. And, um, I don't know. It's just, it's just, a, it's a different way of working. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it because it helped me to focus during my day. Yeah. And it kind of seems like early on you making that decision to go into the editing world kind of set you up for just kind of, you know, this is where I'm going, that sort of path. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm not sure I specifically thought about that, but I did think in the back of my mind, like, I know this about myself. I know I will want to have kids and I, and I need to find a way to make it, to make it work. So I guess now the, the, the question that, that has to be asked, um, since you've seen a lot of photos in your day, what do you see as kind of the mistakes that photographers are making the most? Hmm, okay. Or maybe maybe it's younger photographers. We can kind of go in that when you were kind of looking through portfolios. Mm -hmm. Like what do you what do you see people making the most mistakes on? Well, here's a mistake that a lot of photographers make when they're pitching to editors, mm -hmm. which is, yeah. hey, I just saw this story you ran on whatever subject. I just shot something on that subject too. Are you interested? <laughs> like, really? Is that comes up? Oh, all the time. Really? So mm. common. Like, well, this is cool work. Thank you for sharing it with us. But since we just ran a story on that country or this subject or this person, we're probably not going to run it again. So please let me know. You know, like, you know, when you're pitching, it's I'm about to do this. I'm going to this place. I want to let you know where I'm going. I want to let you know what I'm working on. So may I show you some of the work when I get back or send you a frame or two while I'm working on the project or, um, you know, a general inquiry. Do you take freelance work, you know, because I found myself, unfortunately, having to write a lot of thank you very much is a very interesting project. But specifically, when I was at NPR, we didn't actually take a lot of freelance work. Mm -hmm. So um, just asking, what is your policy of working with freelancers or um, just saying, like, this is where I am. Call me if you need something. Here's an example of my work. So I guess that would be one mistake, which is just uh, trying to replicate something that's already be do been done. The other I think we touched on a little bit was um, sort of not having your own style or not um, sort of pitching to the right publication, whereas like you might be sort of just starting out in your career, you probably shouldn't be pitching to National Geographic at that point. But, you know, finding places where your work fits with their style. And so doing a little bit of research, finding out what the publication is looking for, and then pitching 
sort of appropriately. That would be one thing. Um, in terms of photographic mistakes, um, you know, there's nothing that sticks out right away other than, um, again, like having a portfolio that is not tightly edited would be a mistake I see quite a bit. So, you know, looking through somebody's website and they just have too many pictures that show the same thing or haven't, you know, refined their edit quite a bit or um, even basic things like having a website that doesn't work very well or isn't intuitive or I can't find your contact information or, you know, some really basic things where it's really helpful to, again, show your work to somebody else, show your website to somebody else, be willing to take constructive feedback, say, like, is this working for you? And then um, being really, really willing to take feedback in a constructive way to to always improve. So so that the tight edit on a on a on the website. Yeah, what, tight right, edit. So what's all right. So what, what is a tight edit? You know, you think in terms is it number? Is it type of pictures? Like, it's like, not number because mm-hmm. all, people always say, you know, what's the right number? I mean, the right number is enough. <laughs> enough to show your work, enough to show your style. Um, it's, again, like I said, not having a lot of repetition. So, um, And that might be repetition of a certain kind of picture or a certain subject. So again, just being really critical with yourself, only showing your best work. And I think there's a tendency... I do this myself <laughs> to think, God, I worked really hard to make that photo and I waited in that position for so long and I was so hot and I was so hungry and I just wanted to leave and isn't this picture amazing? But you know, if it isn't, it shouldn't be in your portfolio. So you got to just take a step back, take yourself away from the moment and just really ask yourself or like... Maybe the editor won't notice that it's slightly out of focus, like because it's so good otherwise. The like, editors always notice. Always notice. <laughs> so um, again, just just being honest, honest with yourself, and you know, you could have a portfolio with like five really amazing photos, and I would rather see a portfolio with five amazing photos than with twenty. You know, even if your five amazing photos are amongst that bunch, you're gonna. Your weakest photo is always going to bring your portfolio down because it just says, like, I don't know enough about myself and my work to, like, remove these um, weak photos from the edit. And then just always be, you know, refreshing your website and putting new work in there and, you know, questioning yourself and just trying to improve, I guess. So we talked about what goes into a pitch. Um, What are some elements of kind of long-term stories um, that you think – make will make for a successful story as an editor you you work with a lot of photographers doing kind of longer term maybe documentary maybe personal projects sometimes but what do you think goes into making an effective long-term story mm-hmm. that's a good question and um you know one of the things i loved about my job at national geographic was getting to see so many photo stories because that's what the proof blog focused on and so we would run you know photo essays portrait series, documentary stories. And so I really had the privilege of getting to look through a lot of really great work. And, um, you know, we had so many pitches coming in, most of which were really amazing. And it was hard um, to even pick which ones we were going to run. In fact, we had a planning board 
um, you know, of, of possible pitches and a calendar of, of, you know, what day we were going to run them. And we just had so many pitches that we wanted to run and that just we could never get to because there were so many great, so many um, great pieces of work out there. So I guess the question is, you know, what what would make a photo essay rise to the top um originality i think was one thing like is it something that i've never seen before or is it something that i've seen before but that's photographed in a in a different way that i've never seen before um and i think a lot of it you know you could just tell when the photographer was so sincere in their desire to tell the story and that they really put their heart into it um i know that's something that's like not easy to capture but I think when you spend so much time looking through so many photographs it's something that as an editor like you can tell very quickly even from looking through just a couple frames you know like okay this is this is something special this is something cool this is something I need to share with the world you know this is something that I want to like tell people about this is something I want to find out more about and so and again, that could be different styles. Like there's different portrait series. There's one that sticks in my mind of um, this twin town where this photographer went. And there's this one town. Um, I can't exactly remember where it is, but that there's this really, really high incidence of twins. And so he went there and they'd been, they were tired of being photographed. They knew that people wanted to come and they were reluctant to be photographed. And he um, was able to gain their trust and get access and make just this really beautiful and compelling portrait series um, of these twins. Um, Captioning to get back to that theme so important. <laughs> mm-hmm. If a photographer can help tell the story in their captions or their quotes or um, help me really to understand why they're photographing what they're photographing and not just have it be the images, but the pairing of the images and the words that can really help bring the whole story to life. That's always really helpful. Um, and, you know, again, I had the privilege of working at National Geographic where their photographers that they were sending out on assignment had the benefit of the National Geographic brand and the name and the funding behind them. So they were going to, you know, islands that nobody could get to and doing deep sea dives with equipment that nobody else had. And, um, you know, one of the things that was so cool about the National Geographic photographers is that most of them, well, not most of them, but many of them didn't start out as photographers, but they started out as scientists or they um, started out as an anthropologist or they um, started out in a different field. And then they felt so compelled to tell the story of what they were doing that they learned photography. And so they were bringing that knowledge, that scientific knowledge, that background as a biologist or um, a plant specialist um, to their work. And so they weren't just making a picture, but they were telling a story about something incredibly valuable um, that they needed people to understand. And then there's also the photographers who, you know, are very um, struck by the human condition. And so they are telling often incredibly heartbreaking stories of people in very difficult conditions. And they, um, you know, they will live with those people. They will work with those people. They will spend time with those people. They are willing to be uncomfortable. Um, And that is when I think the photography really moves into an incredibly powerful plane where you can just like feel the emotion um, of the people. And so, 
again, it's one of the reasons I love photography. It's when it can take you somewhere, make you feel like you're someplace that you would never get to access um, on your own and go places you never would get to go and really feel like you're there. And I guess when you can make a photograph that really transports someone, either their head or their heart or brings them someplace, um, that's that's when you're really moving people. And, and I think the emotion and the power behind um, great photography is is really why I love working with it. And that that's a great a great point uh, for me to kind of transition into the work that you're doing right now for uh, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. So you talk about a picture being able to take people places. Uh, tell me a little bit about how a picture can can change policy, can change perspective, all that with the work that you guys are doing. Yeah. So now I work as the digital and multimedia director for the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. And we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit investigative journalism center here based in Madison. We cover the state of Wisconsin. And then we also train um, the current and future generation of journalists. Um, we work very closely with UW to train student reporters. Um, and so we are doing very big picture looks at systems in the state and um, mostly failing or broken systems, trying to figure out how these stories impact the people of Wisconsin and then tell those big policy stories through you know, individuals to really show the impact of, of what's happening and how it's affecting people's lives. So as a photojournalist, again, my role is to... Um, tell the tales of those people and make people, the readers, care deeply about our subjects. And it is a challenge for me on a lot of levels. One, because I haven't been a working photojournalist for most of my career. You know, I do have a degree in photojournalism. I've always shot assignments everywhere I've worked, um, but I was not the day-to-day photographer. So I'm having to sort of retrain myself learn those skills again, um, take everything that I've learned as being an editor and then apply it to myself. So um, that is a personal challenge. And then um, the challenge, of course, of just making um, photographs that are going to be powerful, be emotional, make people care, draw them in. Um, So that's something that I work really hard on, um, especially since a lot of our stories are very data-driven and document-driven. So it's a matter of like finding the real people in those stories. And then again, finding the time to spend with them. You know, sometimes I'll only have a very short period of time with that person. Um, When I'm lucky, I get to spend more time with them. And really, because it does take a while to gain trust, make people feel comfortable. You're coming into their lives with this big, heavy piece of camera equipment. You're putting it in their face. You're telling them to relax, to pretend you're not there. Like, you know, that's hard. And so often if I'm with a reporter, then that's one more person in the room. So finding ways to like work quickly, work effectively, make people feel relaxed, um, make an image that is true, not having people try to set stuff up for you, which happens quite a bit because they are often setting up something for the reporter. Like, I'm going to meet you at this time in this place. We're going to talk about this stuff for this long. And then it's like, okay, now you can take my picture. And they're like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, well, 
don't really want you to do anything. Um, so there have been situations where I've had to, people have set stuff up with the expectation that they were going to perform uh, for me. And so having to sort of back them away from that situation so we can be totally true, totally accurate, never publish a picture that has been set up or manipulated. Um, and it, even if that is means coming back a different day, um, doing, you know, and just saying, like, thank you so much, but I just really want to be here when you're doing your genuine thing so whatever it is whatever you know, it is yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah that's so much into the the that ethics conversation we were talking about earlier i mean unbeknownst to many kind of starting out photographers you can't publish something that's not genuine like that. absolutely that you you think oh as he, as someone just starting out it's like oh well they would have been doing this normally right doesn't exactly work that way. Exactly, right. And I think that's where I'm able to bring so much knowledge as being a photo editor into this role. So that's really important to me. And and so these ethical decisions are made all along um, the publication chain from like, where are we getting these pictures from? Because often we don't have time or the resources to go make the pictures themselves. Well, are we going to use a handout photo from the industry that we're reporting on? Well, it's a good picture, but the credit is going to read, you know, the National Association of et cetera. And like, I'm not going to I'm sorry, I'm not going to use that picture. We're reporting on you. So being willing to say no or like, no, that's not good enough or no. What can we do to push ourselves a little further or, um, you know, being willing to say no, even if it's going to upset the subject or your editor or push the deadline back. I'm really being willing to go the extra mile to make sure that the visuals are as um, respected and strong and powerful um, and accurate as um, the written word. Yeah, that's the, and reminds me a bit of that. I'm sure you saw the, uh, the photo of uh, Angela Merkel and at the, at a recent summit and, Everyone says, oh, well, look at look at what this is portraying. You know, it's her standing over with her her arms kind of, you know, in a very dominating pose. And, and then you look at the caption and it's by the German chancellor's office. You know, it's it's that was the story that they wanted to tell from that story mm-hmm. or from that event, rather. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, like, the, you know, you're a casual reader. Um, might not look at the photo credit. Um, and that's actually, I, I speak to a lot of journalism classes on campus. And so I often ask the class, how many people look at the photo credits? And not that many people raise their hand. There's always one. There's always one that just raises their hand. I look at the photo credits. Most people don't. And so again, like it is your responsibility as the photographer, as the editor, as the publisher to say, you know, we have to tell the truth and what is the truth and where is this information coming from? And if this information is coming from a source that we don't trust or is not credible or might have a bias or might have an angle, might have a story that they're trying to push, we have to be able to say no. And I know that there are a lot of publications out there who have said, no, we're not going to run handout photos. We're not going to run handout photos from the White House. We're not going to run photos from an event where the White House photographer was the only person allowed into the room. Um, And so again, it's hard because your other option might be no image at all. So what are you going to do? It's not always easy. And so one of one of the last things I kind of want to touch on before we go into sort of the the lightning round of just a couple rapid fire questions uh, about your thoughts on on visual creativity. I noticed that uh, you've done a lot of work on a documentary recently. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Los Lecheros. Los Lecheros. Yes. So we 
Um, the Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism partnered uh, last year with a uh, production company called 12 Letter Films. Um, they had the um, director, his name is Jim Crickey, and his wife, Susan Peters, um, run this production company. They had read a story that we had reported on um, immigrant labor on dairy farms in Wisconsin. Um, for people not familiar with that issue, um, Dairy is obviously the Wisconsin signature industry, and um, what most people may not know is that most of the uh, manual labor done on dairy farms is done by immigrants, many of whom are undocumented. Um, that is not necessarily news to people that live in Wisconsin or work in the dairy industry, but it is news to people that might not be familiar with that issue. So we wanted to show what it was like for those laborers after um President Trump took office because he came in with a pretty, you know, clear policy on what he was going to do around immigration. And so um, because of our reporting and um, some access that we had already gained, um, we learned of uh, one family who had worked on a Wisconsin dairy farm for 16 years that was going to self-deport um, because they were afraid of being, um, you know, involuntarily removed and um, you know, we didn't really know what was going on with immigrants and children at the time, but they had two American-born children, and they were afraid that if the father and mother got deported, that they would get separated from their American-born children. So uh, we, uh, myself and the reporter, Alexandra Hall and Jim Crickey, um, and again, this comes down to access and trust and, and work ahead of, ahead of time, um, were able to spend um, the last two days on the dairy farm with um, the family. So we covered um, Miguel Hernandez's last shift um, and then his son's graduation from preschool. And then uh, he packed up and left the next day. And so we were there for that process. Um, so he was one character in the film. By character, I don't mean, again, that he was acting in any way. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we featured a farmer who employs immigrant labor and has spoken out quite publicly about um, why he does that. Um, and then some politicians, one politician in particular who had introduced an anti um for lack of a better term, anti-immigrant labor bill. Um, and so we tried to present uh, as journalists both sides of the issues to just show what it was like for people and um, both the farmers who were the employers, the employees themselves, and um, people who were trying to legislate around the issue. And so we made a 21-minute film. It's played or is going to play in 15 um, national film festivals so far. It just got picked up by the Atlantic Selects online film uh, festival. So we're really excited because now it's actually available to the public for the first time. So you can see it on the Atlantic's website. And um, that was the first documentary that um, the center has made. Wow, that's that's amazing. And we'll be sure to include uh, links and, and everything for people to be able to, to check that out, as well as all the other you know photos we've been talking about, stories uh, along the episode. What was the challenge in making making that that documentary what was what was the most challenging part about it um well i think just logistically one thing was having three people trying to document the same person on their last day of work and not uh getting in each other's way so just um communicating because i was doing still photos jim was doing video and alexandra hall was doing the reporting um so just some logistical challenges but um everything else uh came together um 
pretty well. It was it was a really cool process to be a part of. Um, Jim did all the shooting. He's based in New York. He put together, um, you know, some drafts that he would send to us. Um, we just wanted to make sure it was journalistically accurate. So rigorous fact checking of any um, factor figure that showed up in the film. Also, again, making sure it was journalistically accurate. There was um, some sound that was brought in um, from some of Trump's speeches. Um, just making sure nothing was misleading. Everything was accurate. Uh, some of the uh, people featured in the film only spoke Spanish, so making sure all the translations were accurate. Um, and again, just making it interesting and um, and beautiful and compelling. Yeah, yeah. Those those small small crew shoots can be can be a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did it take to to build that that trust and that access? Because I think that's that's what seems to to me as one of those core pillars of strong photojournalism, strong visual storytelling, you know, it's access. That's one of them. And and what did it take to, to build that trust? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And trust is, was a big part of that story, especially because we were dealing with a population that was undocumented, that was potentially vulnerable, that had given permission for us to show their faces and say where they worked, um, but making sure they fully understand the ramifications of that because we did not want to take advantage of anybody. We did not want to expose anybody to harm or possible deportation. So again, I think think as journalists, something we can all do for each other is to be so true to your word. And if you say you're going to do something or not do something, you have to follow through on it, whether that's telling a subject you're going to send them a, a print after your shoot or you're going to not show something that they asked you not to show. Um, you know, for every journalist that breaks that trust, it makes it harder for the next journalist coming along down the road. So I think as a group, we all owe it to each other to just be so true um, to our core values. So um, Alexandra had done, we had, we had done a previous story um, with a number of these characters and she spoke fluent Spanish. So she was able to, um, you know, communicate with them, make sure that they understood what they were telling us that it would be published, that it would be published across the state. And so we, you know, came to agreement about we can run your first name, but not your last name. Or we can say that your farm is located in this county, but not name the town or not name the farm. And then we did that. And in fact, the first story we ran, we um, didn't run uh, Miguel and his wife Luisa's uh, real names because they had asked us not to because they were afraid. And so then by the time the second story uh, came around and they had seen the first story and they were actually leaving at that point. So they said, you know what, it's okay. You can run our names, you know, because they, they trusted us. Right. So, um, sometimes it just takes a lot of time, but again, it's just, and being vulnerable yourself, sharing something about yourself. Don't expect to just parachute into somebody's life and expect them to just open up to you without being willing to open up, um, yourselves. Uh, so I think that's, that's something. And, and just being, you know, understanding that you are working most of the time with vulnerable people. You wouldn't be photographing them if they didn't have a story that you were trying to tell, you know, unless it's a feature or something. But um, it's just being sensitive mm -hmm. and being kind. Yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of people can learn from that. Just as everything you, you need to know about life you learned in preschool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so true. <laughs> All right. 
Well, Coburn, this has been an awesome conversation, um, and I want to wrap it up with just kind of a quick lightning round about uh, visual creativity and kind of some your your quick thoughts uh, before we before we end the interview. Okay, let's do it. All right, what's the one thing in your bag that you never leave home without? Lara bars. Lara bars. Lara bars. They are. Um, really good for um, making an assignment stretch out for a long time because you're always going to be there longer than you think you're going to be and you don't want to get hungry. So I always have Lara bars stacked in all the pockets of my purse, my backpack, my photo bag, my audio bag, and my desk. Wow. That's, <laughs> that is a good one. That, that's, that's a new one. I think everybody's giving me a really different response to that. Some people are gear. Some people are just like trinkets. Some people, you know, food. Food. There you go. Always bring food. Food. All right. What do you do outside of photography that recharges you? Well, I do have two small children and um, I love spending time with them. It doesn't necessarily recharge me, but it does give me a new perspective. So, um, you know, just taking my uh, working hat off and putting my mom hat on and just um, playing and being joyful um, with my kids is really something that's important to me. Mm-hmm. What kind of drives you to improve your your work and your skills as a as a visual storyteller? Yeah, I mean, I just think for me, I'm the sort of person that's never satisfied with um, the status quo or the way things are. And, um, you know, I always work for organizations that have the highest standards of um, journalistic integrity. And I always want my photography to um, meet that. Um, So, again, just staying inspired never resting, never being satisfied um, with the way things are and just always wanting to try and do it better next time. Wow, great. What advice would you give to someone graduating from from university or college today about pursuing a, a career in in, uh, in photography and in whatever kind of comes next in terms of visual storytelling? Yeah, um, I would just tell people that, you know, if you enjoy doing photography and you think it's fun, um, just to make that happen and to do it and to not give up. I know it can be really hard out there, um, especially starting out, especially for freelancers. Um, but to just develop your own style and to be, um, you know, confident that the more you work, the better you're going to get. And just don't be afraid to, um, ask for help. I guess I would say like, uh, build relationships, um, ask for feedback, never badmouth anybody, whether that's like anybody in the industry, any editor, you know, again, it just goes back to like being true and being kind, you know, this is a small industry, um, be respectful. Yeah, that, that's, that comes down to it. Be respectful. I love it. I love it. So where can people see more of your work uh, or connect with you online? Yeah, sure. So um, right now I work for Wisconsin Center for Investigative Journalism. Our website is wisconsinwatch.org, wisconsinwatch.org. Um, so you can see my work and our stories and um, our documentary. Um, also have a website, coburndukard.com, that has some of my work on it. Well, thanks, Coburn, for coming on the Photo Forward podcast. This has been an awesome conversation. I think uh, I think a lot of photographers can learn a bit from the photo editor perspective. So yeah. thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Enjoying listening to the Photo Forward podcast? Want to hear more thought-provoking, creative visual storytellers? Well, this is where you come in. We want to get the word out as wide as possible about Photo Forward and reach as many listeners as possible. And the best way to do that is through reviews and recommendations on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcasts. 
you want to support more deep dive conversations with photographers, videographers, and storytellers the world over, head on over to the Photo Forward page on iTunes and drop a review or even a rating. It means a ton to growing the show, and I personally read through each and every review to make this show the best damn visual storytelling podcast out there. So, as always, keep seeing, keep shooting, and keep putting your best photo forward. See you all soon.